Father, we are so very grateful that we have your word to enlighten our thinking, that we can know a lot through our own observation, our own intellect, but nevertheless, there are those things that we cannot know apart from your disclosure, your unveiling, your revelation to us of your plans, your purposes, who you are and who we are. For it is only in the light that is the illumination of your word that we see light, that we are able to see things as you created them and not as we think or wish or hope they would be. It's your word that describes reality in terms of your creation. Help us as we study your word to come to understand it truly and that we can come to understand your plans and purposes more fully that we might appreciate all that has been accomplished in our salvation and all that you have provided for us for our ongoing spiritual growth and spiritual development in light of a sure and certain future with you in eternity. And we pray that you will enlighten us to your word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Matthew chapter 11. And Matthew chapter 11 begins, as I pointed out last week, a new section within the flow of Matthew's uh, argument. He is presenting a case that Jesus of Nazareth fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies and promises related to the Messiah, recognizing that those that were not fulfilled were related to the establishment the inauguration of the kingdom, and that when Jesus came the first time, he came to offer the kingdom to Israel, and that has been the theme of the gospel for the first uh, 11 chapters or so, and in chapter 12, we reach the climax. There's a major shift that takes place, and chapter 11 is the prelude to that uh, shift that occurs in chapter 12 when the religious leaders Uh, turn against Jesus and accuse him of performing his miracles in the power of Satan rather than in the power of God. So chapter 11 begins, functions as a prelude to that rejection, and so we see that Jesus is on the path, the road to rejection here in Matthew uh, Matthew chapter 11. Now, last time I pointed out some things related to John the Baptist because the, the first thing that we see in the way that Matthew has organized his material here is to go back and to refocus our thinking upon John the Baptist. Now, why in the world would he do that? Remember, I've uh, explained to you as we've gone through this that Matthew is not organizing his material in a chronological fashion. He's not presenting this so that this happens and then this happens and then this happens. He is organizing it thematically in order to make his case. He doesn't give us all of the details with regard to some of the miracles that uh, Mark or especially Luke provides because that doesn't fit his purpose. He's not giving us all the details. He just uh, gives us enough so we understand the basic point in each one of these events as they fit together within the flow of his of his narrative that Jesus is indeed the uh, Jewish Messiah and he came to offer the Jewish kingdom and that that he has chosen twelve Jewish disciples 
who were sent out to proclaim the message of this Jewish kingdom uh, related to its establishment. And the 12 disciples are related to the 12 tribes. And so this is what has taken place between chapter 10 and chapter 11. So why does Matthew go back and say, and tell, t- tell us about John? He does so because he's reminding us of the purpose and the function of John the Baptist in terms of Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament revelation. So let's just review a minute what I covered some last time where I did a um, summary of the life of John the Baptist, and we saw that he was uh, miraculously announced. His birth was miraculously announced by the angel Gabriel to his father Zecharias, who was serving as a priest in the temple. And Zecharias was married to Elizabeth. We're told they were an older couple, that she had not been able to uh, conceive. She was barren and that they were close to, if not past, the age of childbearing. And Gabriel announces that she is going to conceive and give birth to a son. And then he says that he will go before him, that is the Messiah, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, that's important because that plugs him into Old Testament prophecy from Malachi 3, 1, as well as Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. In Malachi 3, 1, we have the statement, Behold, I send my messenger. The speaker here is God, who has, uh, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is telling uh, through Malachi the prophecy that the, the way you're going to know the forerunner is because, uh, I mean, the way you're going to know the Messiah is because there's going to be this forerunner. He is going to be a prophet. Now, there's a pattern that we see set up in the Scripture. On Tuesday night, we've begun a study of 1 Samuel. What we'll see in 1 Samuel is some important principles uh, for many areas, but specifically we'll see some important uh, material related to government and leadership. And one of the things that we will see is that when the Israelites reject God as their king, that God is going to give them a king. He's going to send his prophet Samuel to anoint the king. And this is significant because it shows that the king doesn't serve as the absolute authority in Israel, but that the king is under the authority of God as represented by the prophet. The prophet will stand in judgment of the king, his rule, his reign, and the culture, so that a civilization stands under the authority of God, not independent from the authority of God. And so it is Saul that is uh, anointed by uh, Samuel and then Uh, When Saul disobeys God, he is going to be replaced by David, and Samuel also anoints David, showing the priority of, of the Word of God, the authority of the Word of God over the government. We see this same thing. Remember, Jesus is coming to present himself as the king of Israel, the Davidic messianic king, and so there will be a prophetic uh, forerunner to the Messiah. This is John the Baptist, so that... Uh, it emphasizes this pattern of the fact that the ruler comes under the authority of God. And so God pr- predicted in Ma- Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
This is also related to the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 3, that there will be a one who comes who prepares the way of the, of the Messiah. And this quote from Malachi 3.1 is the quote that we find in uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. But I want you to notice uh, that, that there's a slight difference. In Malachi 3.1, we see the, uh, a third-person perspective here. It is the first person who is speaking, Behold, I send my messenger. And then we have that third-person singular pronoun, and he will prepare the way before me. Notice how Jesus uh, refines that quotation. He says, Behold, quoting, quoting from Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Notice he said, I will not send my messenger before his face, but before my face. So uh, it is language that is reminiscent of that great messianic prophecy in Psalm 110, verse 1, where David said, The Lord said to my Lord. This is a conversation between uh, the two members of the God, two of the members of the Godhead, between God the Father and God the Son. And so Jesus is quoting this as if God the Father is speaking to him, I send my messenger, and he, or Jesus is saying, Behold, I send my messenger, and he, and, uh, excuse me, I'm looking at the wrong verse there. He will send my messenger, I will send my messenger before your face, speaking to this, uh, God the Son, who will prepare your way before you. So this is, he is specifically applying the passage in Malachi 3 to his own role and function as the Messianic king. Then we saw in Malachi 4-5 that God prophesied that he would send Elijah the prophet. See, that's what fits in with that statement from, uh, from, uh, Luke chapter 1, that John the Baptist would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So there's this connection here. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming grateful day of the Lord. Now, the issue here that many people stumble over a little bit is that it's not literal Elijah. It is someone who's coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah, as the angel angel Gabriel states it in Luke chapter 1. It is someone who is coming in a ministry like Elijah the prophet. There's no reincarnation uh, in Christianity. Uh, Hebrews tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. We don't have recycling in... um, in Christianity, you have one shot, and that's it. Your, your life's decisions are what you're accountable for. And so this is someone who's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. But there is a, there's an interesting contingency here because uh, it's related to the message of the kingdom that John the Baptist would be the one who fulfilled this prophecy if... Israel had accepted the kingdom. That's what we uh, hit on last week in Matthew 11:14. Jesus says, "And if," and this is a first-class condition, mean, and it's used in a sense of an argument. And if, and if you were to do this, if you were willing to receive it, and the it there uh, refers to the kingdom in context. It's not referring to John. It's not saying if you were willing to receive. Him, that is John, it's saying if you are willing to receive it, that is the kingdom, he is Elijah who is to come. 
But then, after they rejected the kingdom, then this doesn't apply to John. And this is what the um, uh, disciples are asking Jesus in Mark 9, 11 to 12. They ask him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah also has come. That's John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they wished. That is, they rejected him. And then in Matthew 17, 11, after the rejection, Jesus says, indeed, Elijah is coming first. That's future tense. And I believe that this is going to be fulfilled by the two witnesses that are described in Revelation that will come during the first half of what is referred to as the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week, who will present the case for the Messiah to Israel uh, during that first half of the tribulation. We're told that thousands upon thousands of, of Jews will at that time accept Jesus as their Messiah. Then, now back to our passage in Matthew 11, 11, uh, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, and he introduces the fact that John is um, John is uh, greater than anyone. I mean, John is great, the greatest in the Old Testament era, but he is not as great as anyone in the kingdom. A couple of things I want to point out here. Let's just read the verse. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, that's a, that's a Hebrew idiom. It just simply means those who are, those who are human beings, okay, that mankind, the human race. It says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. So up to this point, John the Baptist is the greatest, and we have to understand what that, what that, in what way that is described. It says, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John, John, Jesus speaks of John's greatness, that up to this point, no one is greater. Now, some people think that this describes John's, uh, John's spiritual life. And I don't, that's not the focal point of the chapter. Other people come up with different theories as to what this describes. And as I pointed out last time, the issue here has to do with revelation. And this becomes clear when you look at the, uh, down at verse 13, which says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. That tells us that he's looking back into the Old Testament. He shifts the order. Usually it's the law and the prophets, but he's talking, uh, he reverses the order to catch our attention. He's talking about both the prophets, the Nevi'im, that's the, uh, the section of the uh, Old Testament scripture, the Hebrew scriptures that contain the former and the latter prophets, and the law, that's the Torah, that's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And he's saying everything there points to the Messiah. Everything there uh, points to him, and as you go through the Old Testament, as you start with Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as we've studied in the past, where God is speaking to the serpent after the, uh, after the fall, he's speaking to the serpent and then to Eve and then to Adam, 
and there he tells them of what the consequences for their for the sin is going to uh, is going to entail, and he tells the the serpent addressing the serpent that he the that the seed of the serpent your seed will uh, uh, crush the or bite the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush your head, and it it's indicating the ultimate victory of the seed of the woman over the seed of Satan or the opposition to God that arises in human history. And so that's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first allusion to God's plan of salvation and the promise of his the seed of the woman. And that phrase, the seed of the woman, becomes a key term, especially the seed as you read through Genesis, you read through the Torah, that you trace the seed. That's a purpose for all those genealogies that people bog down on, and they go, well, why do I need to know who begat who begat who begat who, and I'm just going to skip over it. And that's tracing that line of the seed from Eve all the way down uh, to Jesus. And so all of those genealogies connect together. So you have all of these prophecies in the Old Testament. Each one adds another dimension to the understanding of who the Messiah would be. We come to understand that he's going to not only be human, he's the seed of the woman, but he's going to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and he's going to be the descendant of Judah, uh, the, the Lion of Judah, the tribe of Judah, the scepter will not depart from you. And as we go later on and trace that through, we see that he's uh, not just a descendant of the tribe of Judah, but he's going to be a descendant of King David. And then as we read further, we learn that he's going to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And so there's more and more prophecies that are given, prophecies like Isaiah 53 that indicate that he's going to be rejected and that he is going to be despised by all and that he is going to go to an execution where he will be uh, executed for the sins of the world. And time after time as we go through these Old Testament prophecies, we see that each prophet is given a little glimpse of something related to the Messiah. And as you put the pieces together, then the picture becomes a little more clear. It was so clear that when Jesus was born, you had two people, uh, Simeon and Anna, that both are expecting the Messiah, and they've both been given a promise by God that they would see the Lord's anointed, and they live to, to see that. And so we see all of those pictures. But the greatest of all those prophets is going to be John the Baptist because each of those prophets just saw bits and pieces of the picture. But first of all, John sees the final piece come together. He's the last of the prophets. When it says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, that doesn't exclude John. That includes him within that list of prophets as the last one who is able to put the last uh, part of the picture together, and he then, secondly, is the one who is going to offer the kingdom as the forerunner. So he's greatest because he sees the last of the pieces of the puzzle come together. He's greatest because he's the one who's going to offer uh, the kingdom to Israel, 
And third, because it's his role to announce the presence of the king and to identify for the people the messianic Davidic Davidic king. And so this is what makes John the greatest. It's because he has more revelation than all of the others, and he's able to bring it all together to announce the kingdom and to identify the king to the people. But John does not enter the kingdom. Now, this is an important um, important issue because there are some people uh, who believe that when Jesus began to proclaim the kingdom, that's when he inaugurated uh, the kingdom. And this is when the kingdom began. And this view, as we studied, for those of you who listened to the dispensational series on Tuesday nights that I just finished, this is the view that is called by theologians the already not yet view of the kingdom. That's the big code word to listen to, the already not yet view of the kingdom. And the term that they will use is that Jesus came and inaugurated the kingdom. It's not here yet among those who hold that view that are premillennialists, that is, they believe Jesus will return before the kingdom begins. They believe that it comes in progressively through this church age and will then finally and fully come into existence when Jesus returns at the second coming or second advent. That's called the already not yet view of the kingdom. It's already here but not yet fully. They say it's been inaugurated. In contrast to this, this verse is making a clear distinction that if Jesus had already inaugurated the kingdom with the beginning of his preaching, John would be in the kingdom. He's still alive at that time. This event that takes place here at the beginning of chapter 11 takes place after Jesus had begun his public ministry. So it's very clear from this passage that John the Baptist is not in the kingdom of heaven. He's he's being contrasted to those who will be in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's another thing you should note here, is that the contrast is between John the Baptist, who is lumped in with all the Old Testament prophets, and those who are the least in the kingdom, not in the church. Okay, he's not talking about the church age. The church hasn't even been introduced yet. The church doesn't get get the word church used in a distinctive way. It's used a couple of times for assembly in the Old Testament, but in a distinctive way in the New Testament, it's not until you get to Matthew chapter 18 that you have the first use of the word church looking forward to the establishment of the church. When Jesus says, I will build my church, it's future tense. So the church isn't in existence at this point. The church hasn't been announced yet because the kingdom is still being offered to Israel and the kingdom isn't officially rejected by uh, the leaders of Israel and the people of Israel until Matthew chapter 12. And so what we see here is a contrast between what those in the Old Testament had and what those who are in the kingdom will have. So... It is emphasizing that simply this contrast between, you know, that's based on, actually based on revelation. Those in the Old Testament had an incomplete or partial revelation. They had partial information. But those who are in the kingdom in the future will have full revelation. In fact, they will see Jesus who will be ruling and reigning on the earth. So that's the point of this, this a particular contrast. It's not contrasting their spirituality or their spiritual maturity, but the core issue here has to do with John's incomplete 
uh, revelation. That's why, that's why when he sends his messengers, his two disciples, to ask Jesus if, uh, if he is indeed uh, the one, uh, or should he expect someone else? He says, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus pointed to all of his miracles to show that as his credentials and to show that he was, he was indeed the Messiah. He doesn't really answer his question because that he's just showing him trust in what you have seen and what has been revealed to you. You're not going to get all the data. You don't need to have all the data. Just trust in what you've been given. And so John is has incomplete revelation. His problem wasn't doubting. His problem was confusion because he what he thought would happen, that is the kingdom would be there, uh, wasn't happening. He was still in prison. He said, this doesn't fit with my image of the king coming and establishing the kingdom because he doesn't grasp the fact that the kingdom is going to be postponed. It's going to be rejected and be postponed, and it won't come into existence until Jesus returns a second time. Now, in the next verse, in Matthew eleven twelve, we have another interesting and significant verse. In this verse, we read, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. It's real obvious what that means. Let's move on to the next verse. <laughs> this is one of those verses that has been uh, misused and abused uh, quite a bit. Uh, there are those who take this to mean that uh, we, we as church-age believers should use violence to take uh, to enforce the kingdom and to push it on the earth. That's one view, one one aspect of those who hold to dominion theology. Those who hold dominion theology, for the most part, are post-millennial. That means they believe the church is instrumental in bringing in the kingdom before Jesus returns. See, we're premillennialists. We believe that Jesus returns at the end of the seven years of the tribulation and establishes the kingdom. So he returns before the kingdom, before the thousand-year reign of Christ, before the millennium, and they believe that Jesus returns at the end of the millennium. Postmillennialism is also very much related to replacement theology, which is a horrible heresy that entered into the early church around the late uh, second and our late third and into the fourth centuries, where it was taught that the church completely replaced Israel in God's plan and was the sort of the uh, seedbed for cr- the development of Christian anti-Semitism. So post-millennialism is also built on an allegorical interpretation of Scripture, and for those and many other reasons, we reject that. But this has some political sway today in some aspects of conservative Christianity. I particularly want to issue a warning on this to those who are homeschooling their children, because a lot of, uh, in for the most part, really good uh, curricula that's developed for home schools are produced by gr- groups who are Christian reconstructionists. That's another term that's used. They want to reconstruct society in preparation for bringing in the kingdom. You, you know, they have some great material in many areas, uh, but in a lot of areas, it's infected by their 
some of their uh, faulty views related to the kingdom and related to eschatology. So it's very important. You know, a lot of people say, well, why do we worry about the end times? They'll take care of themselves. Well, what, where, how you define where you're headed will affect the decisions you make today. How you understand where you're going, you know, you see that every day in your work or everyday planning. What do you want to accomplish today? Well, when you look at the end of the day, you want to accomplish certain things. So where you want to end up at the end of the day is going to determine the decisions you make throughout the day in terms of how you prioritize your time and your energy and your, your, your finances. So it's the same way in terms of our life. How we understand God's end game is going to affect the decisions we make today. And so if you're post-mill or you're in some form of dominion theology, and most of you may not even know about some of these things, and that's fine, but they do affect us. A few years ago, there was a, a prayer day, day of prayer that the governor called for, uh, Governor Rick Perry called for here in Texas. But one of his staff members who was energizing this was part of one of these Dominion theology groups. And a lot of the groups that came together supporting that were within that framework of Dominion theology and Reconstructionist. Now, a lot of people who participated didn't know any of that. But that cast a bad shadow on that particular event. Theology matters, and when even politicians are ignorant of theology, they make bad decisions. And this is something that we have to be educated about. So, from the days of John the Baptist until now, Jesus says. So he's talking about just a specific period of time. He's not talking about general opposition to the plan of God. He's not including within this any opposition to the prophets of the Old Testament, any opposition to God uh, throughout the uh, previous dispensation. He's only talking about the fact, something that is occurring between the beginning of John's public ministry and right now. And the reason we know he's talking about right now is because he uses this Greek uh, adverb, RT. There are two Greek words that can be translated now, RT and Nuni. And RT has a much more narrow focus than uh, Nuni does. Nuni can be now generally. And, uh, for example, I may make the statement that now we're going to be uh, witnessing a lot of political activity with regard to the presidential election in 2016. Now, that word now isn't like right now. But if I were to say uh, now we're going to have a congregational meeting, I'm using now in a sense of right now something that's more immediate. And that's the word that Jesus is using. He's talking about from a particular beginning point with probably two to three years earlier when John began his public ministry to that particular moment. So he says the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is he talking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven? There are some people who take from this that that the kingdom of heaven has already begun. But that would not fit either this context or the context of, of any of the Gospels. When Jesus is talking about the kingdom, he doesn't mean that the kingdom was already inaugurated, that it had already begun, because he's excluding John from being part of that. If it had already begun, John would be part of the kingdom. He's only dealing with the fact, or presenting the fact, that the message of the kingdom of heaven, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, 
which has been the message of John the Baptist, the message of Jesus, and the message of the 12 that were sent out, that that message is what is suffering violence. We see this in the way that Jesus talks about this in several passages. In Matthew 4.17, for example, we read from that time, that is from the time of his beginning of his ministry when John the Baptist was was arrested. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say that repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that term at hand means that it is it's present. It is being offered to you. It is near. It has a proximity to you. It's not saying it's here right now. Um, in Luke 17:21, uh, we read, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Now, there are a lot of people who take that and extrapolate that and say, see, the kingdom of God is inside you. Everybody has God inside them, and everybody's going to go to heaven. But he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's talking about those who are opposing him and those who have rejected his message. He certainly can't be saying the kingdom of heaven is in you because you're liars and deceivers. And over in John, he says that they're their father, the devil. So he can't be meaning that he is inside of them. And this Greek preposition that's translated within you in the New King James and Old King James in your, should be translated in your midst or within your grasp. So that what Jesus is telling them is that this has been offered. It's within your grasp if you would accept it. There's a proximity here, and it's, it's near because the king is here because the king was standing before them as a representative of the kingdom, then that was, uh, it was near to them. Matthew 12, 28, which is, we'll study in the next chapter. Jesus has been accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. He says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this is the Greek preposition epi, which means to you. It's being presented to you. It's being offered to you. In Mark uh, 9, 1 and 2, where we have uh, reference to the uh, kingdom uh, God, Jesus says that, uh, that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God come in its power. He's talking about James and John and Peter, who will see a manifestation of the kingdom on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is referred to in verse 2. So, Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until this moment, the kingdom of heaven, that is the message about the proximity of the kingdom of heaven, suffers violence. Now, this is where things get a bit dicey because the word there for suffering violence is we have the verb here and then the noun in the next, uh, in the next clause. The, the verb here is this verb biadzo, who's only, which is only used a couple of times uh, in the New Testament, it's used here and also in Luke 16, 16. Both passages, I believe, are talking about the opposition to the gospel. The problem is, is simply this, that the form, the Greek form of the verb can be either a middle voice. See, I've underlined it here. It's a present, it's either a present middle indicative or a present passive indicative. Now, this is going to drive some of you nuts because we get into grammar, but grammar is important and causes a great divide on how this passage is understood. 
In the Greek, a, you have in the present tense, you have one form for the active voice, and then you have another form that is, it doesn't have a distinctive middle voice. It either ha, it has the same form for either middle or passive, so you have to determine from context which, which it is. If it is a middle voice, then that means to some degree the subject performs the action. And that would indicate that we are to take the kingdom in the sense of establishing the kingdom by force. And that is a problem because no, there hasn't been any documentation yet in any Greek literature of this verb being used with the sense of the middle voice. Okay, so you can just take that by faith. Having I've gone through the literature and the, and the lexicons and everything, and there's no there, there's there's no clear example of this verb being used in the middle voice anywhere. But if you take this dominion theology, reconstructionist theology viewpoint that we are to take the kingdom or establish it by force as a result of our effort, then you have to take it with that middle voice. But the way you do exegesis is you look at a verb and you don't just impose your theology on it. You say, okay, it could be a middle voice. Do I have any examples anywhere of this verb being used with the middle voice? No, not at all. So it's, it's extremely doubtful that that's how the word was ever used. And so you can't just say, well, I think it should be that this way because it could be. Possibility doesn't mean probability. It's not likely because there's no evidence of that. If we take it as a passive voice, then that means that the kingdom is being acted upon violently. And that is what fits the context because what Jesus is going to further describe in this particular passage is the opposition to the message of the gospel of the kingdom. That's what the illustration starting in verse 15 down through 19 is going to describe, the opposition to the gospel. And then he's going to... um, rebuke or denounce the various cities in Galilee that have witnessed his miracles uh, to an abundant degree, uh, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and especially Capernaum, where probably about uh, 70-80% of his miracles took place. They all rejected the light that was given to them, and so there will be judgment upon them. And then all of this is going to culminate in the great rejection of his claim to be Messiah by the Pharisees in Matthew chapter uh, chapter 12. So that's what he is talking about here when we understand this, that, that the religious leaders of his day rejected the concept of the kingdom that John the Baptist and that Jesus are presenting. And it grows right out of Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament passages, a literal, physical Davidic kingdom that would be characterized by a righteousness that was not the result of human effort and human fruit. And so this is what the Pharisees have been teaching, is that salvation is the basis of human effort and human works, not dependent upon God. But remember, back in Genesis 15, 6, we learn of Abraham that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That Isaiah said all of our works of righteousness are like filthy rags, so we can't rely on our deeds of tzedakah. 
We can't rely on our deeds of righteousness. We have to rely on somebody else's righteousness. And Scripture teaches from Genesis to Revelation that when we trust in God's promise of a Messiah, in the Old Testament it was looking forward to the fulfillment of that Messiah. In the New Testament and after we look back to its fulfillment, when we trust in him, then God credits to us, he applies to us the perfect righteousness of the Messiah, and we are declared righteous. Isaiah 53 says that when the servant comes, the servant will justify many. That's that word uh, related to Tzedakah for making righteous. He will uh, make them righteous legally before God. And so the reaction from the world, uh, is to reject that message, that kind of righteousness, that kind of a kingdom, and so they violently react to that. And that, of course, is fulfilled because John the Baptist is going to be uh, executed before too much more time goes by. Eventually, Jesus was going to be uh, was going to be executed, crucified on the cross. And then, as you go through Acts, you see how much uh, antagonism and opposition, hostility there is to the disciples. Peter and John are arrested and beaten, scourged, thrown into prison, and uh, Stephen is eventually stoned in uh, uh, Acts chapter 6, and it just goes on throughout that, that there's this reaction to the message. Now, in Matthew 11:13, we just had the explanation, which I've already covered, that all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. So this has been their their message. And then he says, if you are willing to receive this, receive this message of the kingdom, he is Elijah. John would fulfill that prophecy. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, because we're having our congregational meeting today, I'm going to stop at this point. We'll come back and begin with the next section uh, next week. The focal point here is to remember that what we can expect is hostility, what we can expect is rejection because this is uh, the way the world operates. It rejects the message of God. This is what Jesus warned his disciples about. In uh, John chapter 16, he said, If the world rejected me, it will reject you also. Uh, the issue is, in terms of our following Christ, in terms of discipleship, are we willing to take that on and recognize that no matter what may come, we're going to stick with the Lord, we're going to stick with the Word, and we're going to make it our priority no matter what the opposition may be, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study these things today and reflect upon your grace and your goodness. We're reminded that we cannot be good enough. We cannot go through enough ritual. We cannot go through enough uh, good works to ever, uh, ever please you because your standard is qualitatively different from our standard. The only way in which we can produce the kind of righteousness you require is for you to give it to us, that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy you save us, that this is... To, is because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty and he stood in our place. And because he paid the penalty for sin, that he was separated from you judicially on the cross, exemplified by his cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That during that time, uh, your justice was satisfied so that your grace could flow freely to us 
because the penalty for sin was paid for. So therefore, the only issue is what do we think about Jesus? It's not what we've done wrong that's been paid for. It's what do we think about Jesus? Father, we pray that you would make the gospel clear to those who need to hear it. For others, we recognize that the message, the application that we see from these passages is that there will continue to be these trends of opposition to the gospel, opposition to uh, the message of Jesus Christ throughout this age and on into the tribulation period. But we who are believers need to stand fast to uh, live our lives on the basis of grace, even towards those who oppose us, that we may be an, a, a, an example to all of your grace and your love to the world. And we pray you challenge us with these things in Christ's name. Amen.